Psychology as the Viewerist Views It Part 1 This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org Read by Om123 Psychology as the Viewerist Views It Part 1 By John B. Watson, 1913 First published in Psychological Review, 20, 158 to 177 Psychology, as the behaviorist views it, is a purely objective experimental branch of natural science. Its theoretical goal is the prediction and control of behavior. Introspection forms no essential part of its methods, nor is the scientific value of its data dependent upon the readiness with which they lend themselves to interpretation in terms of consciousness. The behaviorist, in his efforts to get auditory scheme of animal response, recognizes no dividing line between man and brute. The behavior of man, with all of its refinement and complexity, forms only a part of the behaviorist's total scheme of investigation. It has been maintained by its followers generally that psychology is a study of the science of the phenomena of consciousness. It has taken its problem on the one hand, the analysis of complex mental states or processes into simple elementary constituents and on the other, the construction of complex states when the elementary constituents are given. The world of physical objects, stimuli, including here anything which makes side activity in a receptor, which forms the total phenomena of the natural scientist, is looked upon merely as means to an end. That end is the production of mental states that may be inspected or observed. The psychological object of observation in the case of an emotion, for example, is the mental state itself. The problem in emotion is the determination of the number and kind of elementary constituents present, their loci, intensity, order of appearance, etc. It is agreed that introspection is the method par excellence by means of which mental states may be manipulated for purposes of psychology. On this assumption, behavior data including under this term everything which goes under the name of comparative psychology, have no value per se. They pose a significance only in so far as they may throw light upon conscious states. Such data must have at least an analogical or indirect reference to belong to the realm of psychology. Indeed, at times, one finds psychologists who are skeptical of even this analogical reference. Such skepticism is often shown by the question which is put to the student of behavior. What is the bearing of animal work upon human psychology? I used to have to study over this question. Indeed, it always embarrassed me somewhat. I was interested in my own work and felt that it was important, and yet I could not trace any close connection between it and psychology, as my questioner understood psychology. I hope that such a confession will clear the atmosphere to such an extent that we will no longer have to work under false pretenses. We must frankly admit that the fact so important to us which we have been able to clean from extended work upon the senses of animals by the behavior method have contributed only in a fragmentary way to the general theory of human sense organ processes, nor have they suggested new points of experimental attack. The enormous number of experiments which we have carried out upon learning have likewise contributed little to human psychology. It seems reasonably clear that some kind of compromise must be effected. 
either psychology must change its viewpoint so as to take in facts of behavior whether or not they have bearings upon the problems of consciousness or else behavior must stand alone as a wholly separate and independent science should human psychologists fail to look with favor upon our overtures and refuse to modify their position the behaviorists will be driven to using human beings as subjects and to employ methods of investigation which are exactly comparable to those now employed in the animal work any other hypothesis than that which admits the independent value of behavior material regardless of any bearing such material may have upon consciousness will inevitably force us to the absurd position of attempting to construct the conscious content of the animal whose behavior we have been studying on this view after having determined our animal's ability to learn the simplicity or complexity of its methods of learning the effect of past habit upon present response the range of stimuli to which it ordinarily responds the widened range to which it can respond under experimental conditions in more general terms its various problems and its various ways of solving them we should still feel that the task is unfinished and that the results are worthless until we can interpret them by analogy in the light of consciousness although we have solved a problem we feel uneasy and unrestful because of our definition of psychology we feel forced to say something about the possible mental processes of our animal we say that having no eyes its stream of consciousness cannot contain brightness and color sensations as we know them having no taste buds this stream can contain no sensations of sweet sour salt and bitter but on the other hand since it does respond to thermal tactual and organic stimuli its conscious content must be made up largely of these sensations and we usually add to protect ourselves against the reproach of being anthropomorphic if it has any consciousness surely this doctrine which calls for an analogical interpretation of all behavior data must be shown to be false the position that the standing on observation upon behavior is determined by its fruitfulness in yielding results which are interpretable only in the narrow realm of really human consciousness this emphasis upon analogy in psychology has led the behaviorist somewhat afield not being willing to throw off the yoke of consciousness he feels impelled to make a place in the scheme of behavior where the rise of consciousness can be determined this point has been a sifting one a few years ago certain animals were supposed to possess associative memory while certain others were supposed to lack it one meets this search for the origin of consciousness under a good many disguises some of our texts state that consciousness arises at the moment when reflex and instinctive activities fail properly to conserve the organism a perfectly adjusted organism would be lacking in consciousness on the other hand whenever we find the presence of diffuse activity which results in habit formation we are justified in assuming consciousness i must confess that these arguments had weight with me when i began the study of behavior i fear that a good many of us are still viewing behavior problems with something like this in mind more than one student in behavior has attempted to frame criteria of the psychic to devise a set of objective structural and functional criteria which when applied in the particular instance will enable us to decide whether such and such responses are positively conscious merely indicative of conscious or whether they are purely physiological 
Such problems as these can no longer satisfy human behavior. It would be better to give up the province altogether and admit frankly that the study of the behavior of animals has no justification than to admit that our search is of such a willowed character. One can assume either a presence or the absence of consciousness anywhere in the polygenetic scale without affecting the problems of behavior by one jot or one title, and without influencing any way the mode of experimental attack upon them. On the other hand, I cannot for one moment assume that the paramecium responds to light, that the rat learns a problem more quickly by working at the task five times a day than once a day, or that the human child exhibits pleteo in his learning curves. These are questions which vitally concern behavior and which must be decided by direct observation under experimental conditions. This attempt to reason by analogy from human conscious processes to the conscious processes in animals and vice versa, to make consciousness, as the human being knows it, the center of reference of all behavior, forces us into a situation similar to that which existed in biology in Darwin's time. The whole Darwinian movement was judged by the bearing it had upon the origin and development of the human race. Expeditions were undertaken to collect material which would establish the position that the rise of the human race was a perfectly natural phenomena and not an act of special creation. Variations were carefully sought along with the evidence for the heaping up effect and the weeding out effect of selection. For in these and other Darwinian mechanisms were to be found factors sufficiently complex to account for the origin and race differentiation of man. The wealth of material collected at this time was considered valuable largely in so far as it tended to develop the concept of evolution in man. It is strange that this situation should have remained the dominant one in biology for so many years. The moment geology overtook the experimental study of evolution and descent, the situation immediately changed. Man ceased to be the center of reference. I doubt if any experimental biologist today unless actually engaged in the problem of race differentiation in man, tries to interpret his findings in terms of human evolution, or ever refers to it in his thinking. He gathers his data from the study of many species of plants and animals and tries to work out the laws of inheritance in the particular type upon which he is conducting experiments. Naturally, he follows the progress of the work upon race differentiation in man and in the descent of man but he looks upon these as special topics, equal in importance with his own, yet ones in which his interests will never be vitally engaged. It is not fair to say that all of his works is directed toward human evolution or that it must be interpreted in terms of human evolution. He does not have to dismiss certain of his facts on the inheritance of coat color in mice, because forsooth they have little bearing upon the differentiation of the genus Homo into separate races or upon the descent of the genus Homo from some more primitive stock. In psychology, we are still in that stage of development where we feel that we must select our material. We have a general place of discard for processes, which we anathematize so far as their value for psychology is concerned by saying, this is a reflex, that is a purely physiological fact which has nothing to do with psychology. We are not interested, as psychologists, in getting all of the process of adjustment which the animal as a whole employs, and in finding how these various responses are associated and how they fall apart, 
thus working out a systematic scheme for the prediction and control of response in general. Unless our observed facts are indicative of consciousness, we have no use for them, and unless our apparatus and method are designed to throw such facts into relief, they are thought of in just as disparaging a way. I shall always remember the remark one distinguished psychologist made as he looked over the color apparatus designed for testing the responses of animals to monochromatic light in the attic at Johns Hopkins. It was this, and they call it psychology. I do not wish unduly to criticize psychology. It has failed signally, I believe, during the fifty-odd years of its existence as an experimental discipline to make its place in the world as an undisputed natural science. Psychology, as it is generally thought of, has something esoteric in its methods. If you fail to reproduce my findings, it is not due to some fault in your apparatus or in the control of your stimulus, but it is due to the fact that your introspection is untrained. The attack is made upon the observer and not upon the experimental setting. In physics and in chemistry, the attack is made upon the experimental conditions. The apparatus was not sensitive enough. Impure chemicals were used, etc. In these sciences, a better technique will give reproducible results. Psychology is otherwise. If you can't observe three to nine states of clearness in attention, your introspection is poor. If, on the other hand, a feeling seems reasonably clear to you, your introspection is again faulty. You are seeing too much. Feelings are never clear. The time seems to have come when psychology must discard all reference to consciousness. When it need no longer delude itself into thinking that it is making mental states the object of observation, we have become so enmeshed in speculative questions concerning the elements of mind. The nature of conscious content, for example, imageless thought, attitudes, and bustige large, etc., that I, as an experimental student, feel that something is wrong with our premises and the type of problems which develop from them. There is no longer any guarantee that we all mean the same thing when we use the terms now current in psychology. Take the case of sensation. A sensation is defined in terms of its attributes. One psychologist will state with readiness that the attributes of a visual sensation are quality, extension, duration, and intensity. Another will add clearness. Still another, that of order. I doubt if any psychologist can draw up a set of statements describing what he means by sensation, which will be agreed to by three other psychologists of different training. Turn for a moment to the question of the number of isolable sensations. Is there an extremely large number of color sensation, or only four, red, green, yellow, and blue? Again, yellow, while psychologically simple, can be obtained by superimposing red and green spectral rays upon the same diffusing surface. If, on the other hand, we say that just noticeable difference in the spectrum is a simple sensation, and that every just noticeable increase in the white value of a given color gives simple sensations, we are forced to admit that the number is so large and the conditions for obtaining them so complex that the concept of sensation is unusable, either for the purpose of analysis or that of synthesis. Tichener, who has fought the most valiant fights in this country for a psychology based upon introspection, feels that 
these differences of opinion as to the number of sensations and their attributes as to whether there are relations in the sense of elements and on the many others which seem to be fundamental in every attempt at analysis are perfectly natural in the present undeveloped state of psychology while it is admitted that every growing science is full of unanswered questions surely only those who are wedded to the system as we now have it who have fought and suffered for it can confidently believe that there will ever be any greater uniformity than there is now in the answers we have to such questions i firmly believe that two hundred years from now unless the introspective method is discarded psychology will still be divided on the question as to whether auditory sensations have the quality of extension whether intensity is an attribute which can be applied to color whether there is a difference in texture between image and sensation and upon many hundreds of others of like character the condition in regard to other mental processes is just as chaotic can image type be experimentally tested and verified are recondite thought processes dependent mechanically of an imagery at all are psychologists agreed upon what feeling is one states that feelings are attitudes another finds them to be groups of organic sensations possessing a certain solidarity still another and larger group finds them to be new elements correlative with and ranking equally with sensations my psychological quarrel is not with the systematic and structural psychologist alone the last fifteen years we have seen the growth of what is called functional psychology this type of psychology decries the use of elements in the static sense of the structuralists it throws emphasis upon the biological significance of conscious processes instead of upon the analysis of conscious states into introspectively isolable elements i have done my best to understand the difference between functional psychology and structural psychology instead of clarity confusion grows upon me the terms sensation perception affection emotion volition are used as much by the functionalist as by the structuralist the addition of the word process mental act as a whole and like terms are frequently met after it serves in some way to remove the corpse of content and to leave function in its state surely if these concepts are elusive when looked at from a content standpoint they are still more deceptive when viewed from the angle of function and especially so when function is obtained by the introspection method it is rather interesting that no functional psychologist has carefully distinguished between perception and this is true of the other psychological terms as well as employed by the systematist and perceptual process as used in functional psychology it seems illogical and hardly fair to criticize the psychology which the systematist gives us and then to utilize his terms without carefully showing the changes in meaning which are to be attached to them i was greatly surprised some time ago when i opened pillsbury's book and saw psychology defined as the science of behavior a still more recent text states that psychology is the science of mental behavior when i saw these promising statements i thought now surely we'll have texts based upon different lines after a few pages the science of behavior is dropped and one finds the conventional treatment of sensation perception imagery etc along with certain shifts in emphasis and additional facts which serve to give the author's personal imprint one of the difficulties in the way of a consistent functional psychology is the parallelistic hypothesis 
if the functionalist attempts to express his formulations in terms which make mental states really appear to function to play some active role in the world of adjustment he almost inevitably lapses into terms which are canonative of interaction when taxed with this he replies that it is more convenient to do so and that he does it to avoid the circumlocution and clumsiness which are inherent in any thoroughgoing parallelism as a matter of fact i believe the functionalist actually thinks in terms of interaction and resorts to parallelism only when forced to give expression to his views i feel that behaviorism is the only consistent and logical functionalism in it one avoids both the scylla of parallelism and charivadis of interaction those time-honored relics of philosophical speculation needs trouble the student of behavior as little as they trouble the student of physics the consideration of the mind-body problem affects neither the type of problem selected nor the formulation of the solution of that problem i can state my position here no better than by saying that i should like to bring my students up in the same ignorance of such hypotheses as one finds among the students of other branches of science this leads me to the point where i should like to make the argument constructive i believe we can write a psychology define it as pillsbury and never go back upon our definition never use the terms consciousness mental states mind content introspectively verifiable imagery and the like i believe that we can do it in a few years without running into absurd terminology of beer betty von Eucal, Neol, and that of the so-called objective schools generally it can be done in terms of stimulus and response in terms of habit formation habit integrations and the like furthermore i believe that it is really worthwhile to make this attempt now end of psychology as the viewerist views it part one